0: It all begins with poo. Let me explain. For years, black students across South Africa, like Anzio Jacobs, had a problem with a statue at the University of Cape Town. A statue.
1: Oh my word, we've hated the statue for as long as it's been here.
0: The statue was named after.
1: Cecil John Rhodes.
0: That's right, as in the Rhodes Scholarship. Cecil Rhodes, British mining magnate. Politician
1: and... Big advocate of racial segregation.
0: But it didn't just stop at the statue. The entire university was littered with monuments, buildings and rooms, all named after heroes of colonialism. The place was dripping in white privilege. The university just saw it as part of its history. But for many black students, the buildings were named after people who'd murdered their ancestors. Then, one day in March 2015, Ramabina Mahapa, who was president of the Student Council, got a phone call.
1: I actually got a call from one of my SRC colleagues saying there's a naked black man throwing poo at the statue of Rhodes. Go down there and see what's happening.
0: That's right. A man was throwing poo at Cecil Rhodes. When Ramabina got there, he saw the imposing statue of the white colonialist, who believed that whites were superior to blacks, sitting in a chair, his chin resting on his hand, Covered in human feces.
1: As I was about five or so meters away, you know, I was, there was a smell, you know, a smell of feces, and then also there was also a mixture of other things in it. It was not just that.
0: I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, supported by our launch partner, Mobilisation Lab. Have you ever been so angry about the injustice of something? that you've considered doing stuff that is way outside your comfort zone. You see something on the news and it sets your mind racing about what you'd do if only you had the power and resources. Perhaps you've acted in anger at something small and surprised even yourself. Anger can be an enormous motivator, especially when something feels unjust. But unless anger is effectively deployed, it can also be debilitating and drive us to do things that aren't really solutions at all. Today, part one of a two-part exploration of what happens when anger ignites a movement. Today on Changemakers, I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa at Witts University, where, two years ago, people decided that access to education would be this generation's battleground. It's a story of a simple demand... That led to an explosive fight that opened up a Pandora's box of fundamental questions about equality and how to achieve it. And just a warning this is a tough story. Let's go. The poo had been thrown by Chimani Maxwali, a student who lived in the township just outside of Cape Town, a place, like many townships, with no proper sanitation. Instead, They have mobile toilets with buckets to catch the waste. Why poo? Why did he throw poo?
1: He was saying, look, people in this sort of high tower called UCT must also experience what it's like to live in a township where you are, on a daily basis, exposed to the smell of of, of poo. It was an attempt to link UCT to the struggles in townships.
0: Not long after Ramabina arrived, security was called, and after a scuffle, Chamani was charged with assault. In the days that followed, students held a meeting to air their grievances. Chimani was not the only poor black student who hated the statue, but the university refused to remove it. They said it was part of the university's heritage. Linda Way was a student at the time. A week and a half after the original incident, she was walking down the stairs towards the statue with three friends. And I saw, like, a group of students, like, protesting, and I asked them, what are you guys
2: doing, you know? And one of them was like, "No, we're protesting because like we are
0: tired of institutional racism that is happening in the school." They were demanding the removal of the statue. For Lindaway, that statue went to the heart of what she felt was wrong with the university. But Lindaway's friends were hesitant. They were black, but they also felt UCT had a reputation to uphold. As blacks, they felt pressure to behave like model students in this institution of white privilege. They didn't want to rock the boat because that would confirm everything that whites thought about blacks already. They cannot embarrass, like,
2: you know, the white culture of this university. So my friends were like, nah, no, 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 Chomi, we're going to go, like, uh, no, we're not going to do this. So even though
0: Linda Wade didn't know anyone there, she decided, in that split second,
2: to join the protest. And my friends were like, no, we're going. I was like, okay, cool, shop, I'll see you guys later.
0: Little did she know that that was the last time she'd see her friends for weeks. So we started singing and, like, students were, like, protesting, protesting. It was just a very little group, right? They decided to march down to the administration block to demand the statue's removal.
2: As we were walking down, some of the students kept on joining, you know? Like, some of the students were like, ooh, protest, something that has never been done at UCT. And they were getting excited, you know? Nothing like this had ever been
0: done before at the university. By the time we got to the admin building, there was, like, a lot of us. The university's vice-chancellor came out to meet the protesters and he told them that they didn't know what they were talking about, that there was no institutionalised racism. We are most diverse, everything is fine. And we're like,
2: actually, we're not good. This is Africa
0: and the university looks like it's in Europe. The point that the protesters wanted to make was, sure, the university had black students, but they were expected to study surrounded by symbols of those who had murdered and raped their ancestors. That was not an environment conducive to allowing black students to thrive.
2: And one of the students just like took the mic away from the vice chancellor and was like, let's go in.
0: And that was it. It was a complete shock to everyone. Nobody knew exactly why they were going in and occupying the administration building. We went in and we started singing and singing and singing. A movement had begun complete with a hashtag, Roads Must Fall. Nobody had planned to say,
2: tonight I'm definitely sleeping on a carpet, nobody. But they did, and it
0: wasn't just one night. We slept in the in the administration building for about a month. The students came up with a memorandum of why they were protesting and told the administration they were not leaving until they'd won. All around the country, students had been protesting against fees, but this protest was different. And it wasn't just about getting rid of the statue.
2: When we said roads must fall, we meant the legacy of roads must fall. That means institutional racism, patriarchy, rape culture, all the things that you can think of, all the oppressions that you can think of that came with roads.
0: Access to the university for black people was about so much more than fees. They wrote down their demands. But more importantly, they started discussing tactics. After all, they had time on their
2: hands. What's the next plan? What are we going to do next? Which pressure points are we going to use to get management to agree to most of the things that we're saying?
0: And we learned. Every night, they would invite academics from universities across South Africa to come and deliver lectures to the occupation. These discussions helped them work through the fundamental questions they were having about their education. What did we mean when we say decolonize our institutions? One of their demands was that they wanted the curriculum to be less European and more African, to decolonize the curriculum. That's when we started, like, formulating the ideology of fallism. What is fallism?
2: Fallism is an ideology that is based on three pillars, which is black consciousness... Pan-Africanism and
0: black radical feminism. Fallism, a philosophy that united different identities behind a single united demand to strip the colonial vestiges of white privilege that remained 25 years after apartheid had fallen.
2: We had to, like, embrace our blackness and, like, teach each other how to be black conscious and love each other in our blackness. It was a period of intense politicisation. Being in that space and everything that I've learned in that space,
0: it was just, like, the best thing ever. The protesters decided that white people would not be allowed to join in their occupation. It was, like, for blacks only. And
2: for the first time in the history of the University of Cape Town, me and many other black students, we felt like we belonged in the university for the first time ever. Why? For the first time, you could raise your hand in a room full of people and speak and not be laughed at and be looked at as like a person who's
0: not educated enough for you to be in that space. Some white students started getting it. They started their own solidarity group, disrupting whiteness. But Lindaway says that being in a black-only space allowed her to realise for the first time that she was not alone in feeling out of place. She was a 28-year-old first-year student, sitting amongst a whole lot of 18-year-old white kids. But it wasn't the age gap. It was everything.
2: My education was teaching me how to learn how to type, so I can be either be a receptionist or how to make tea, how to saw, how to
0: cook. The occupation was a space for students like Linda Way to both learn and unlearn. Weeks went on and the students refused to leave. They thought we were going to get tired and would move. No, we didn't. The vice-chancellor convened an emergency meeting of the university council with only one item on the agenda, the removal of the statue. There were 30 members of the council. Just one was black. We're
2: outside that building singing, and they knew that we're outside singing, you know, like, just like, you better make a good decision because, like, it's about to go down. You know?
0: Realising it was the only possible decision, the council unanimously agreed to the statue's removal. It was a remarkable turnaround. Within days, trucks arrived to take it down. As they drove in, the students left the building they'd occupied for weeks and marched down. There's a picture of me crying. I don't remember myself crying, but there is a picture of me tearing up on that day. The statue had been removed. The students went home for their media break. Meanwhile, universities across South Africa started announcing their fee increases for the following year. And that year, they were big. Fasiha was at Witts University in Johannesburg. It's opened up at 13%. 13% might not sound like a lot in isolation, but that was on the back of years of increases. Remember, this fee increment essentially comes after a number of years of at
3: least a 10% increment. So over five years, your fees increases by by 50%,
0: at least. In fact, the fees were becoming prohibitive.
3: This kind of increment was going to close the doors of higher learning to the poor black child.
0: There were students who wanted to keep going with their degrees, but were being forced to leave because the fees were too high. The stakes weren't about the affordability of education, so much as access to education for all. But while students had tried to oppose fee increases for years, this time was different roads had fallen. By bringing down a statue, they'd learnt the university administration could be defeated. The students at WITS, inspired by what had happened at Cape Town University, decided to get organised and fight.
3: We get together a planning committee. We divide ourselves into three main teams. The first is the research team to look again at the financial element of it. Second was the social media team And the third was a mobilisation team. They called it WITS, Fees Must Fall. Now, traditionally in South African society, it's a toy-toy. You hand over a memorandum, sing some struggle, revolutionary songs, you go home, you wait for a response. But that particular protest action was not proving to be effective anymore. It
0: was outdone, it was dead. They thought about the university's weaknesses.
3: What is going to shake everyone up and remind them that in fact you wouldn't have a university without students, that students are the biggest stakeholders here, not the chairperson of council, that there would be no vits without students. A student strike, it seemed far-fetched. Now, if I'm being honest, many of us did not believe we had the capacity to do it. They
0: printed some pamphlets and called a mass meeting on the 14th of October. We told students 12 o'clock at the West Campus tunnel, 12 o'clock was a fairly standard time for a traditional student protest.
3: The idea being, you know, we were also trying to trick management, that we would march up the road and then hand over a memorandum. So that's what management was prepared for. Instead, they did something completely
0: off script.
3: Woke up in the early hours of the morning, got to it's about five, six o'clock, and we sat down in front of the gates. And we were not many people, maybe 20 or so,
0: and we refused to move and it was terrifying. They had no idea how many people would turn up. Remember, this was the first gathering they'd called, and all the pamphlets said it would start at midday, but word started spreading. The hashtag, #VitzFeesMustFall and optimistically, #VitzFeesWillFall started trending on Twitter. From 6am, our numbers grew. We didn't
3: spend the whole time at the gates. We went through university, but by around midday, geez, we were at least 1,000 people. from from 20,
0: 30 people in the morning. Meanwhile, their vice-chancellor, Adam Habib, was in Durban for a conference and refused to engage.
3: So he doesn't say anything on the first day. Okay, wake up and do it again the second day. And we said, Adam Habib, we're waiting for you. We're not going anywhere. Your university
0: will remain shut down until you take us seriously. Finally, on day three, a Friday, the vice-chancellor returns. Negotiations to stop the fee increase begin. The students occupy the university's Senate House, which they rename Solomon Malangu House, after an anti-apartheid hero. They demand that the negotiations are done on their own terms. And they live stream them on Facebook as they stretched into the night. That's when other universities started to contact us. They started to say, but
3: we're not the only ones. Fitz, you guys are not the only ones who are fighting an in increment. And that's when we shared ideas. And how did you guys shut down? They failed to reach agreement. By Monday or Tuesday of the next week, every single institution in this country was shut down.
0: The student movement was now united in its opposition to the national government. Remember, the party in charge of the government is the ANC, as in Nelson Mandela, as in the party that brought down apartheid. Indeed, many of the student leaders were in the ANC themselves. And this is one of the first times in the post-1994
3: era that you see young members of the ANC holding the ANC accountable.
0: They were shocked. The students decide to march across Nelson Mandela Bridge to the ANC's headquarters.
3: It's not any governmental building you're going to. You're marching on
0: the headquarters of the African National Congress, the Liberator. The government was not used to being criticised. And, to put it mildly, they didn't take it lightly.
3: They had heard rumours that there was an attempted march and that the riot police had closed off Nelson Mandela Bridge
0: but the students marched anyway. It had the effect of moving public perception.
3: Perception in the first few days is that we were hooligans, we were write-offs, we were radical. Some people even called us monkeys, it was horrible. But by days three and four, we were called heroes. We were called a generation of young people who were not going to accept the status quo.
0: Buso Se Siebe was also at Vitz University. She says shutting down the bridge made them realise the leverage they could exercise with direct action.
4: It doesn't only cause traffic, but it means that people that have to go to work in places like Santon, which is the richest square mile in Africa, and that is where a lot of the middle class works and that's where the Johannesburg Stock Exchange is, can't get to work, which means that particular environment loses money on that day and that disrupts the economy and that's exactly what we wanted.
0: Over the coming days, they ramped up the pressure on the government.
4: We wanted to affect the economy of the state so we could be taken seriously. So we thought of everything, blocking the national highways, blocking bridges, stopping people from going to work. We even spoke to the taxi association. So we had a transport shutdown for about two days in an entire province of Gaudeng in order for us to affect the economy and get what we wanted.
0: Can I ask, where did
4: you get all these extraordinary ideas from? They, they came through what we like calling Mkhabulo sessions, and I hope people will learn this word. Mkhabulo sessions are essentially,
0: so for lack of a better word, it's not arguments, but it is us lobbying each other. Thanks to these tactics, it was a national issue. The president himself stepped in and announced he would meet with student leaders. That's right, within a week, they'd thrust this issue onto the national stage and force the president to the negotiating table. Back in a moment. This podcast is supported by the Fred Hollows Foundation. Four out of five people who are blind don't need to be. The Fred Hollows Foundation knows how to fix the problem and they can restore sight for as little as $25 in some countries. Over the past two decades, Fred Hollows has restored the sight of more than two million people. <coughs> There was one time when I operated on one man, he was blind for so many years and after the operation I followed him back to his home, but he wouldn't go into his house immediately.
2: He just went around touching everything. He touched the cow,
0: he touched the bricks and everything, because all he could do before was touch, but now he wanted to touch and see at the same time. Donate today at hollows.org. So the president had agreed to meet with the students, but the students who'd ignited the initial protest at Witz University weren't impressed. Wits took a
3: decision not to attend.
0: We said that we will be on the ground with everyone, with the students on the ground. The students thought it was more of a publicity stunt.
3: You know, an opportunity to say, Oh, we've brought the students into a room here, eat some lovely food, take some pictures. I'm such a great president, I'm such
0: a great government. They say success has many parents, but in social movement campaigns, success has many hangers on, and unfortunately, the Fees Must Four movement was no different. Sometimes there might be saboteurs, people who infiltrate your event and want to undermine it. When I was organising the Iraq war protests in 2003, at a crucial moment, Just as we were gaining political momentum, someone threw red paint on a politician's car. It totally undermined our message that our movement was respectful and mainstream. Many of us, including me, were convinced that the man had done it to undermine our cause. At other times, the infiltration can come from people who share your political aim but disagree on the tactics. I remember during the same period, one radical group decided it would be a good idea to use school students as cannon fodder against the police. During one confrontation, the police bashed these poor teenagers with batons. The radical said it proved how brutal the police were. But that's not something we're ever trying to prove. In fact, the police had been relatively accommodating up until then. The only thing it proved to me, and more importantly, to the general public was that our movement had been infiltrated by reckless radicals who thought it was all right to put school students in harm's way. Unfortunately, for the Fees Must Fall protesters in South Africa, the sudden mass mobilisation and the sensation around it brought with it its own set of hangers-on. The day the student leaders were meeting with President Zuma, Faseha arrived around 10am. And it's just anarchy. Burning, there's rocks being thrown. Up until this point, the students had been successful because they'd diverted from the normal script, taking university management by surprise when they shut down the campuses and stood up and marched to party headquarters. And now, it seemed, their movement had been hijacked by people who wanted instead to follow a very, very familiar script. Now, you get a group of,
3: of, of people who now say, this is a perfect opportunity to hijack something. And there was an attempt to make things turn violent. It was the worst type of hijack, too. I'm 100% sure there were other members who had a different agenda that was not free education, who had then entered into the space.
0: The radical elements were calling for an overthrow of the entire national government, an absurd demand that simply allowed the government to paint all the students as extremists. Faseha talked it through with other leaders. We say, OK, what are we going to do? We're going to do what we do best. March.
3: We march very well. So we gather all of our people together. By this stage, the authorities took the threat of students seriously. As we marched past,
0: there was huge caspers. They had their guns loaded ready, I mean, ready to shoot. So they marched through the streets of the city, down to the union buildings. By this point, the crowd was 10,000 strong, all of them waiting for the outcome of the meeting with President Zuma. People had their radios on, and that's how we heard President Zuma announced a moratorium on all fee increases across the country for a
1: year. It was a genuine victory. That was amazing because I had thought that it was not possible.
3: But as soon as that announcement came, people didn't disperse. I think people wanted to remain, they wanted to be with each other. But the police were not having that. They wanted everyone to leave. Now, it wasn't like a vitz protest of a few thousand. There was at least 10,000 people there, at least because it was a national thing. And when people refused to move or leave, the police then started to use their water cannons, tear gas. And the caspers they're like big police vehicles, armored police vehicles, basically drove down and forced students into the streets. And then they got out, some of them were on foot, some of them were in the vehicles, and then they opened fire with rubber bullets. That was the first time we came in, I came into contact with rubber bullets, personally. It was horrible.
0: So they'd won. But then, literally moments later, the police started shooting at them. Did you feel like
3: you'd won? Yes and no. Yes, in the fact that we had brought this issue up, that we had done in nine days what so many couldn't do in 15 years. Yes, in that we'd put the issue on the map. But no,
0: because it only frozen it for one year. Some leaders worried they'd find themselves fighting exactly the same battle in a year's time. Others, such as Ramabina over at the University of Cape Town, didn't think it was much of
1: a victory. It was a symbolic victory. Okay, fine. You are 2015 fees and 2016 are gonna be the same. But the main issue was actually that you know, people are not able to pay those fees regardless of the fact that there's an increment or not.
0: And others still, such as Anzio at Vitz University, simply refused to accept it was a victory in any way.
1: What does that help us? We've got this massive debt. You say that there's no increment in 2016, but you'll probably charge 20% in 2017 if we don't address this issue. And so it just stayed.
0: For Ramabina, the fact that the students couldn't even decide on whether to call it a victory was exactly what the government had hoped for.
1: By the end of the week, there were so many fractions and so many, you know, so just all, you know, divide and rule even within the movement.
0: For many, Jacob Zuma's concession proved that direct action worked, and that they should press harder. They released an 18-point set of demands. They didn't just want fees to fall. They wanted free education. Over the ensuing months, fueled by their initial triumph, the direct action team at Vitz University decided to ramp up their militancy.
4: So we didn't want all students to be militant because that could turn into anarchy. Because once everyone is militant, you can't control who's doing
0: what, where they're doing it and how are they doing it. The way they saw it, militant action required a sophisticated political approach that made sure the right targets were hit.
4: The direct action team not only has the ideological understanding as to why the need for militancy, but they have thoroughly gone through the strategy of what is that militancy and how does that militancy advance the point we're trying to
0: get across? The aim of direct action was to provoke the government into a violent response that would show the government's brutality. In the closing months of 2015, students clashed repeatedly with police. As the battles escalated, the students became more adept at fighting back. They learnt to use balaclavas drenched with vinegar to counteract tear gas. They would use rubbish bin lids to protect themselves against rubber bullets and cover their hands in condoms, to stop stun grenades from burning them. The day before the university returned from its Christmas break, students once again occupied the Senate House. The government was faced with a new year of unrest. Instead, they capitulated. They announced a commission to look at the idea of free education. It wasn't a total victory, but it was a step in the right direction. The academic year got underway and... Things calmed down somewhat. The students, at least those who hadn't been suspended for protesting, returned to their studies. Perhaps the government was at last listening. Things settled down. Then, nine months later in September 2016, the Minister for Education finally announced the plan for fees in the following year. I'll give you one guess what he said. Yep, the Minister announced that fees would be allowed to rise by up to 8%. To the students, it was like the government had learnt nothing. But this time, the students were ready. Just like the previous year, they jumped into action, occupying the main hall and bringing with them all the stuff they needed for a confrontation. Vinegar, condoms, bin lids, the lot. The police were also ready. They brought rubber bullets.
4: There's a movie called 3000. It's a Roman movie about Roman generals fighting. So one of the strategies we picked up from there was that they would shield themselves when their enemy was attacking them. But while they shield themselves, they advance and move forward slowly. And that's what we did. So while the police were shooting at us, the dustbin covers were there to protect us from the bullets. And even if they threw tear gas at us, the balaclavas with vinegar would allow us to keep moving without choking. And even if they threw stun grenades at us, we were able to use the condoms on our hands and on our feet so that um, the sparks from the stun grenades don't burn us. So that's what we did.
0: But whereas the previous year they'd learnt that direct action could achieve victories, this year the lesson was different. The reason why we were so
3: successful in 2015 is they didn't know what to expect. This came out of nowhere. They were not ready. But if you use the same tactic every time, of course they're gonna be ready.
0: The movement got so wrapped up in the tactics, they forgot to think about what they were trying to achieve out of this particular confrontation. And that vacuum was filled by chaos. Christmas War 2016 was very messy. We came under severe police brutality. This time, the government refused to back down. And because the students' tactics were the same, this time, the government were ready. Remarkably, none of the student leaders I talked to regret it. They see the 2016 battle as part of a battle that's been going on for decades. Shortly before the battle, they met with some old student activists who'd fought against apartheid in the famous 1976 black student uprising in Soweto. Seeing themselves in the same light as their heroes from four decades before gave them enormous courage to continue the fight for free education. Do you in any way regret having such an ambitious demand?
4: No, not at all. It's ambitious to those who don't believe that there's money. It is not impossible for us who believe there is money and know exactly where that money is going to come from. So this is the domino? Yes, this is the domino and I'm I'm very excited about it.
0: But that'll only happen if they learn and adapt their tactics. And that's something that at least some of them are aware of. But
4: at the moment, I'm more interested in a strategy shift. We can't keep protesting the way we have for the past two years. It is unrealistic, and it puts too many people in the line of fire and at harm
0: than necessary. The fees must force students forge their relationships on the battlefield first as they were occupying the administration building at Cape Town University, and then when they were engaged in direct action at WITS. While they trusted each other in the heat of the moment, certain segments of students felt free to push the envelope further than others. This incoherence of approach then led them to focus almost entirely on the specific tactics they were using, rather than the bigger issue. The 2016 Fees Must Fall campaign was rebuffed by authorities because the students had spent so much time discussing how to fend off rubber bullets, they'd forgotten to discuss why they were using that tactic anymore. In the end, it's almost like their goal was to become better at direct action rather than being better at winning free education. Next week, part two. It's a very different story involving very different people from Brisbane, Australia. but. Like Fees Must Fall, it's about a protest where direct action plays a key role, again ignited by white-hot anger. It's an extraordinary tale. I hope you'll join me. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. It's produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Franey. Written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie, and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. They are a global learning and collaboration network powering the future of social change campaigns. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. And for this episode... Thanks to the Gay and Lesbian Memory in Action Project at Vitz University. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.